Today we have a very special guest. He is a legendary keyboard and bass player, lyrical composer, music producer, global records president, and creator of DAT Music Productions. With 77 music credits, 20 charted hit singles, eight top 10 hits, four RIAA certified gold records, and one platinum album with Lil Wayne, a lifetime member of the R&B Hall of Fame, the original member, one of the original members of the supergroup Confunction, recording and performing artist, producer, all the things, Danny Sweetman Thomas. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, I asked you a little bit earlier, but just for everybody else, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good. Awesome. Well, I am just so honored to talk to you. And I was also able to read your book in its entirety. My Life in Fun Times with Confunction by Danny Thomas, original member of CFS. So we're going to talk about all that. We're going to get into your early life, your fun times with the group, um, music education. I know faith is really important to you and also being an author. So does that sound good to you? Sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> of course. All right. So you began playing piano at three years old. So I just wanted to know a little bit more about how that gene runs in your family, because I know you're um, sister, older sister Jean, she was like a prodigy. Yes. And that was one of the reasons my parents pushed me. I happened to be on, on the coffee table uh, pretending I was playing the piano at three. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me and looked at each other and said, maybe he had it too. And the next week, they had Sherman and Clay bring a truck uh, of, with about four or five pianos to my house and told me to choose one at three years old. And I did, and they put me in music lessons the following week. So it was fun for a few weeks, but uh, when the rest of the kids got to play baseball and hide and seek and all that, I had to practice. It got old real quick. <laughs> and uh, I was not impressed, but I stuck it out, mm -hmm. you know. I stuck it up because of my parents, especially my mother. I wanted to make her happy because this is something that she wanted me to do. She saw me playing in church, which I'm still playing in church today. And um, and so I figured if I make her happy, she'll do things to make me happy. So I stuck with it. And it wasn't until that junior high school that it really clicked. I mean, I was enjoying my piano lessons because the uh, recitals that I was doing, um, um, playing in front of 100 to maybe 50 to 100 people that's always in this class that I was taking, a very good class, very good teaching network, um, was preparing me to perform in front of many people. So when it got time to get on stage with the group, I wasn't nervous, nervous at all. So it all played out. I eventually got the hang of it a little bit. Oh, yeah, I'd say maybe just a little bit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's an incredible story. I know that people, they have gifts. And I know for a fact that playing instruments or making music is definitely one of yours. So I was really happy to read as the book um, continued that it was what you chose to do instead of going into law or choosing to be a teacher. And why wasn't it like an obvious choice for you, like even after being a part of Project Soul? Well, you know. I just attended an African wedding last week, and the minister um, was saying that for Kenyans, if you're not a lawyer or a doctor or engineer, you do not have a job. Those are the things that they respect, okay? Mm -hmm. And my family was not too much different, okay? They expect me to be something, a professional uh, occupation or something like that, but they supported me in anything that I wanted to do. That was the difference. And so um, while I was looking at law, um, business law and that sort of thing, and um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do professionally in life, my sister happened to come in the house and just passing through. And she said, you've been playing music all your life. Why don't you devote yourself to music? And then walked out the door. And I said, I looked at her, I looked at the door after she was still gone. And in the days, I said, well, no, she have a point there. <laughs> you know? 
that's the only thing I really see myself comfortable doing. So mm -hmm. I chose that field and I just jumped in uh, 100%. And did you go to college with the rest of Confunction or were there just certain members that went with you? No, we basically all went to the same school. Okay. Because I do remember reading that and I was like, wow, were all of them, they all went and got college educated in music. Yes. And where did this love for music come from? Um, like in your household was, were your parents musicians or what kind of music did they listen to? My um, parents were very musically involved, used to have parties, used to dance. I was dancing with my parents doing the um, the two-step and all that stuff back when I was like five or six years old. They used to pay me to do the trip. No. <laughs> Can you do a little bit? What does that look like? <laughs> because I was short and chubby, so they loved to see me do it. I think I lost weight by doing the trip. Now, I know that there's so many people who follow me who are music producers or they're musicians themselves or they just have a love for music and they might want to pursue it. What would you say to someone who is also dealing with pressure to maybe do something that is seen as more legitimate or more professional, but really their heart and they their talents all lead to music? Well, it's this old saying that you probably heard many times. If you work at something that you love, you never work a day in your life. So I tell people all the time, pursue your dreams. Pursue what you really are in love with, okay? Because you can make a lot of money and still not happen, okay? So I think the most important thing in life is to find what you are cut and set out to do and pursue that. If you pursue what you love, you can, you will be able to be successful. Your true musicians really don't are not musicians to be for the money. They are musicians for the love of the art. And, and also, don't give up your day job. <laughs> if you if you um if you can make money on the side, I recommend that as well because it's uh, it's not an easy profession. I work for a lot of musicians and uh, artists, vocalists, and I tell them up front, they ask me, you know, things about the business, but I let them know, man, it's a cutthroat business. It's not an easy business. If you have a soft heart, don't get in this business, okay, because it's cutthroat. It's a lot of money involved in it, okay? So uh, I give all credit to God, you know. I don't take no credit for my success. You know, all I did is follow my heart, okay? And God opened up doors, one door after another, and he still opened up doors, okay? So through God, I tell him, you can do all things through Christ. So I give him all the glory and all the praise. I, you know, so, but um, technically speaking, um, you just have to learn your craft, first of all. You have to learn the music business, you know, and and just not the music. You have a lot of naturally talented, blessed people, but will never get a chance to pursue their talent because of the maybe the lack of business, know-how, and knowing the right people. There is a very small world in the music business, and it's just you have to know how to network. And I'm and like now, this is fantastic to me because it's even new to me. You know, now with the the Zoom and the social media and all this sort of thing. Um, back in the day, the record company did all my promotion. All I had to do was show up. Okay, but now the audience wants to be more active, want to be more involved with you. Okay, and so it's good to make yourself available for shows like yours. You know, people like you, and, and thank you so much for, you know, pursuing and 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 giving artists like myself a platform to be able to tell their story. Oh, absolutely. And the and the intention behind this is to honor those who laid the musical foundation that the artists are now thriving in, because without music like Confunctions or even the solo projects that you've been working on, there's not that sound, there's not those contributions that we can take from and make 
timeless music even today what you wrote in the book what you were just saying I definitely saw um, a lot of themes about faith saw a lot of themes about relationships and the different people who helped you along the way and one of them being a really um, I love the connection between you and the barquets the compunction in the barquets and yeah. I just thought that was so interesting. Um, could you talk a little bit about that connection that you all had? I'd love to. Uh, one of my favorite stories. I've given the Bard Case credit for turning turning us out, turning us <laughs> out in a positive way. Because when uh, we first met them back in San Francisco at a club called Basin Street West. Now, at this time, we were the big dog in the West Coast. You know, we were... One of them, I say one of, we had um, another band, which was the Uptights, Marvin Holmes and the Uptights, but they they controlled the Bay Area, okay? But we controlled everything. Else. We did social clubs, uh, colleges, stuff like that, right? And so um, we had our own following. So we so when we went to the club, we were kind of cocky. We had, the, the club was full. Um, Everybody was there to see the barcade, but we had our own fan base as well. And so we did our show and um, got us there in ovation. We felt, okay, let's, let's check out these guys. You know, we've been following them for a while. And so when they came out, they came out high-stepping like the marching band, drum majors, spinning trumpets, turning backflips. I mean, they just, and they actually put on a show, okay, that was not seen on the West Coast because West Coast bands kind of just like Tower Power, another one of my favorite groups, but they just flat foot play and sing. Okay. They may have their beer right here. They'll take a sip of beer and <laughs> go back and horn player. And they're just, you know, professional perfectionists, but they're not, they're in jeans and they're casually dressed and everything. And it's a different vibe on the West Coast. You know, but the East Coast, and we learned this very fast. Um, um, the, the entertainers they put on a show. They entertain. They they put on wardrobe. They dress. They core. They they have choreographed uh, steps, and um, they really perform to the audience. And so, after the show, man, our mouth was wide open. And we were mind was blown, so we got a chance to meet them. They're very nice. They complimented us as well. And so after that, we went home and we redid a whole show. We we got new uniforms, coordinated uniforms. We started putting together some steps and everything, which actually put us two steps ahead of all the bands on the West Coast because nobody else was doing that. Okay, so. And then eventually, we went on the road. It, it prepared us to, when we were in other bands and stuff, just not to be a band, but to be an entertainer as well. And is this what you considered the full floor show that you mentioned in your book? Yes. Okay, because I was like, I didn't know what that term meant. So is that a full floor show? Well, let me explain. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, after that, we also, because we, we have a dynamic singer, her name was Jane London. And she blew. I mean, she sang everything. Rita Franklin, all that kind of stuff. Then we had, he was actually in our band, but we he was a lead vocalist in the group, but we featured him as the male vocalist. Okay, and then we had the singing groups that we would feature in one part of the show. We had, and we would um, contract a comedian to come in and like, um, just you know, do it, do his thing, and so what we'll do is we'll do a a dance set, and everybody will sit down, and then we'll bring out our guest entertainers, and we'll do a show called the floor show, first on the scene, and right. we and we featured each one of these acts, okay, and brought a real class element to like we did mostly the servicemen club, the all the um, uh, NCO bases mm -hmm. in California. Uh, Northern California, some Southern, and um, some of the clubs that we performed that. Now, that's so impressive. And one thing that I noticed in the book was how 
it was these different steps to keep elevating the show. Like, um, I know that you started, Confunction started as Project Soul, but before um, you even recorded a song, you would win all these different talent shows and then take all of your earnings and buy new equipment. And this idea of reinvesting and improving just made it so that now you have this super group that is now, you know, coveted and, and revered. So where did that business mindedness come from? Was that in eight? Like you just knew that, okay, we're going to take this talent show money. We're not going to spend it on gum and candy. We're actually going to buy new equipment. How did that mind or that um, mindset come? Well, it basically comes from the love of music and wanting to be able to be the best that you could be. And you're no better than your tools. Okay. A carpenter cannot carpent if he don't have some good tools. Okay. And so forth and so on. So, um, and we come from a very humble background. Okay. We, our, our parents wasn't rich. Okay. My parents did bought that piano. My, my mother did hair and my father worked at Marriott Shipyard. Okay. And it just blew my mind, even at that age, you know, because um, how they could do that <laughs> and, and why they would do it for me. But, and that's why I didn't want to let them down. So um, we knew that we didn't have no sponsor. We didn't have no investor or nothing like that to get the equipment that we knew we would need to be to be successful. So we saved our money and we slowly um, bought instruments. We improved our sound system. Everything that we knew we need, even bought a van to carry the equipment in. And and as we did this, we got better jobs and more jobs and more consistent. So we and so which allowed us to get better equipment and everything. And so um I mean off to the point where the, the band bought my B three having organ. I call that the best organ ever made. Um Michael was able to get his Les Paul guitar that he loved. Okay, and everybody would eventually get the equipment because we all invested in each other as a band. As in the as individually, it would be harder for us to do. I want to talk about Ebony because I know that you wrote that. That was the very first song that Project Soul released. And yeah. that was able to increase your rate and your um, value as a band because excuse me now you had a record so I'm gonna try to play it we'll see if it works um but I want to just listen to it and maybe get like your memories from that recording session uh, memories I love that part. That song was made by Project Soul when they were in high school. I just find that so mind-blowing. You were in high school at that time when you released it, right? Yes. And I mean, it makes so much sense because I um, read that you all were students of like George Benson and Ramsey Lewis. So speak about that recording session. How was recording for the first time? And did you feel a little bit more confidence in your love of music and the business? Oh, yeah. It was like a dream come true to actually be, have music that you create in your mind mm-hmm. be reproduced in reality. And, and we worked together so great as a group. You know, Felton was instrumental with the horns, you know, uh, he gave it that tower power little flair and in that part of the song. Cause um no, actually it was Chicago flair that we he brought to the song. And um and Michael and Mike Cooper guitar, when everybody playing together, um, it was a, a great moment in time. And Felton also had the flip side um um to the song, which was a ballad. Which made the made the single a powerful little you know package with an up tempo dance tune and a single. 
and the um speaking and the the crowd in the background reminded me of um the impressions were winners that song yes and was that the intention or what what texture did that add to it that you all wanted it was it was a party song so we wanted to give it that party feel you know make people want to hear it want to get up and dance and stuff like that and and it was wow it took me back (laughs) and it sounds inspired by maybe like latin music too a bit you think that that was uh influence from being in california and being around a bunch of different kinds of people yeah we like that percussion you know at that vibe with the percussions and everything Mm -hmm. try to always have percussions on our material and you're speaking about being from california you know, you said um, that you had local bands like Sly and the Family Stone. And I just thought that was so funny because we know them to be like Sly and the Family Stone, this huge entity. But for you, it was like, oh, they're performing at like the local club or the local bar. So what was it like growing up around acts like that? Did it make you or make, you know, the entire group feel like you had more of a standard to live up to? It was motivational. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, um, and we would play their songs, okay, and 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 like at certain points of a song, I might turn in the slide about ten percent. <laughs> you know, I picture myself being sly on stage sometimes because he was so awesome. Mm-hmm. And and to see him play live, you have you you must try to find a video something where you can see their act back in the day when they was you know the the full group playing live performances. You actually have to be there, you know, because it was a, a pulsating feel in their music. We try to keep that vibe alive in our music, even though music evolved. It's a certain feel and a certain energy that we that maintain. That's what makes that song a great song, because we have that certain energy in it. Mm-hmm. And it's the feel good. It makes you feel lighter. Like it brings joy. That's what I love about funk music and music from the 70s and 80s specifically. And um, I'm learning a little bit more about funk music. And I wanted to ask you about the communal aspect of creating funk music and how every single member is so instrumental to the making of it. So um could you speak to that, especially as a musician? I know that oftentimes people focus on the lead singer or the front man, but bands, especially back in the day, it was really about each part and nobody was higher on the platform than others or way back in the back, but you guys were all a unit. So um, when you were creating your music, how did collaboration go and what was the usual process? Very good question. Um, and there's several ways we did it. Um, I might have an idea and I'll bring it to the guys. I said, I want to try this idea out, okay? And and, and let everyone be free to put the input in. Um, and then sometimes on stage, we would have a certain part of the show where someone would just start a group. We'd do a jam session on stage, a live jam session. And um, and we'll just freestyle for um, five or ten minutes. And matter of fact, we had a couple of songs that we created from a, we call it a freestyle, uh, a jam session on stage where we just someone came up with, with a lit and everybody just put it, put in their two cents and jamming. And and sometimes in doing rehearsals in a separate uh, in a you know private setting. We would start a groove and we would just play and just let the groove evolve. We may do a, a groove for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and let it evolve. Okay, and then we record everything. And and technically speaking, you can take bits and pieces, certain things that really worked, or sometimes the whole thing may just rock, you know, as a, a natural groove. And But um, those several ways of doing you know to get people involved and it definitely comes across that's what I really love about the feeling behind it I think that you can't make that up it's not something that's formulaic there's no recipe it's just truly like it 
it's divine truly like the way that it just lays on everybody and everybody is able to like get it and they understand and they're all on the one and it's beautiful so I'm I'm really grateful that you spoke to that and even specifically to um being a keyboard player I know funk is usually associated with bass or with horns so could you speak to being a keyboard player in a funk band well see like me being friend of a slice stone and slice stone was funky on that keyboard so I always try to emulate him mm. for the most part yeah and, but I had I had you know, I love Jimmy Smith. I love uh, um, George Duke. Um, there's so many musicians that I try to, I take a little bar, for a, bar a little bit of this, a little bit of that to create me. Okay, because a little bit of gospel licks. You know, so I had no problem fitting in on the funk because um, I was right there in the middle of it. And and the interesting thing that I want to elaborate more on, I'll even throw magic in the groove with music because um, things that come to you, even on stage, I'm no time where we're doing a jam session and I play, I may do a lick on the keyboard and the bass player across there will do the same lick at the same time, which wasn't planned. Wow. How did that happen? Right. Know? So many times things like that happen in music. So it's um it's definitely a spiritual um part of life. Absolutely. Yeah. To bring that life into the music and you can feel that. And I know that after funk, well not after funk, there's there's no after funk, but in terms of um disco being what was considered pop, and then there was a pressure from funk bands to transition into disco. Um, there was that sterilized like four on the floor and using a lot of um, machines for music, replacing band, I mean, replacing bands, replacing musicians. So how was that transition, that time between uh, funk music being seen as underground and like black and therefore they try to make a new version of it and call it disco? Like, how did you navigate that as a band? Well, it took a lot of bands out. I think it kind of drove James Brown a little crazy, mm. you know. I mean, because he had his screens on uh, on a on a computer. You can push the button, and you hear James Brown screams, and you hit on the record, you know. And he said, "That's me on that record," and I'm not getting paid for it, you know. Mm. Now he did eventually later down the road, and that same subject, just like Bruno Mars went back and captured Love Train. Um, they kind of came back to us. The, the that, that electronic music had to come back and grab the old school music and come back and sample us and because they lost that feel. They really couldn't produce it themselves. But they was able to get it from us still. So it was like a, a two a two way street. Mm-hmm. You know, what almost took us out, you know, end up helping us in the long run. So, yes, we were talking about the magic in music. And um, for everybody who's watching and listening, we had a little technical difficulty, um, but now we're good. I would honestly love to talk a little bit more about how Confunction got its name and how you all changed your name to a song that was actually by the Nightlighters. But actually, we opened up for the Nightlighters at um, oh. Sacramento State Fair. And that was their opening song. Uh, it was on the album. They used it as a intro production because it was very um, uh, syncopated. You really couldn't dance to the song, but it was nice. It was a cool song. And so we adopted the song for ourselves. He borrowed the song and used it as our intro. And we used it for quite some time, for months. And then we moved on because we constantly changing our show. But um, at the time we came up with Project Soul, so James Brown was out, you know, was hot. We got soul. Everything was soulful. But then ten years later, now we're about to get the contract. Now George, uh, George Clinton, the Funkadelics, 
you know, everything is funk now, right? The name of the song was Confunction, right? So we put a bunch of names. So we've got a record deal. They asked us to change our name. And so we put a bunch of names in the hat and we included Confunction. And um, so we narrowed it down. Confunction was still in the power. So we thought about it. We actually, you know, what people now, they call it corporate placement. And when you create a name, you try to get a name that will remind you of something in the field that you want to be in. That's just like IBM. You might want to say IBA. So when you do a search for it, your name may pop up along with the other people you want to be considered with. We were thinking the same on the same along the same lines. We saw some function on billboards with Funkadelic and stuff. All these people that we wanted to be on stage with, Parliament. And so it was a, a unanimous decision to go with Confunction after all of that. And um, it worked. Were you still considered Project Soul when you performed at Watt Stacks? Yes. No, okay. And I do want to talk about that. Watt Stacks, I watched that documentary when it first came out, and it was just mind blowing. And to find out that you were the backing band in the backing band for Rufus Thomas, and that was such a major part of the movie. I, I know that you described a bit of how that felt, but I would love to go even more in depth of, you know, what led to that, not what led to the day, but more so how the hours within that day felt like. What was the 24 hours of being at, uh, preparing to be at what stacks, like the morning of and then doing it and after? How, how did that feel? You would never believe, and this probably was intentional because we didn't know. We were, we were in the East Coast. I think we were maybe in Chicago somewhere and on tour with the Soul Children. Now that's a for a two-man, two-female group out of Memphis, Tennessee, off Alpha Stacks Record, which is a very powerful group. They were dynamic. And so we on tour. Now, we had just been on tour with them for three weeks. We left home in a, in a 36-hour notice. Like Sunday, we got the offer that we couldn't refuse to be in, in Memphis, Tennessee, on Thursday to open up for the Soul Children, well, to be their band for 18,000 seater. And so we left that Monday morning on our way to Memphis, Tennessee. Did that show, it went great. We on tour for three weeks, and we get a call, we're gonna get off the tour, we headed to Los Angeles. We said, okay, we didn't know what's going on, nobody gave us no detail. And we get to the LA Coliseum, and we find out about this concert to watch that movie. You know, we at the hotel. We still don't know what's going on. We just know we got to get, right? Okay, so at this point, Rufus Thomas, we met him um, about a year prior. We did, um, he did a telethon in San Francisco. And the other rival band that I was talking about, they were supposed to perform for him. But since our managers was like a, a promotion member for Stax Records, we got to go to all the gigs of Stax when they come to the barrier, right? Backstage and all, all that, right? So we was there. And when we go to an event like that, for some reason, there's a story in here somewhere. That's why I like to tell it. A message, rather. We brought our equipment. We had our truck with all our equipment and everything. We wasn't supposed to play, but we just had all that stuff there. Mm, and um, so Rufus Thomas landed in the helicopter moments before he was supposed to go on stage. He landed in the helicopter, came on stage, and the up somebody in the band said, which one's to play? He said, uptight, uh, he said, Funky Chicken, of course. That was his hit song back in the day. And they said, we don't know it. He said, what? And then someone in the band, I don't know who it was, said, we know it, that's our favorite song. We played every week, which we did. He said, come on. Wow. So we just literally, I just stepped behind the keyboard. The guys grabbed the guitars. They grabbed their horns. Five minutes later, he he counted the song off, and we hit the downbeat just like the record. Blew his mind. Blew ours, too. 
So this this happened in moments. Okay. So we did, we jammed that song for about ten minutes, and we finished. He left the stage after that. He left, got in his helicopter, took off, and he said bye and everything. We didn't think no more. We we just stayed a shock. That, you know, we didn't that know really that. just happened. What? <laughs> You know, I mean, we we perform in front. Of, that's probably a big, at least twenty thousand people or more. I forget how many. A huge concert, tell them. And so, years later, anytime that, and then when we became the Soul Children Show Band, their backup band. Any city that the Soul Children was in, Rufus Thomas used us. Yes, he didn't bring wow. a band. So that's how. He found out that we was there. He used us for the West Act movie. And and it's history after that. Yes. Wow. No preparation. You know, we are we are total shock the whole time. <laughs> we're just, you know, we just running on fumes, you know. <laughs> That's understandable for sure. I I can't even imagine it happening that fast and for him to just leave. And then I know that eventually you all ended up being his band for wherever city he was in and you were in the same city. Um, but for those who are listening or watching and don't know what Wattstacks was, it was a benefit concert that happened um, in the community of Watts, Los Angeles. And it had the Staples Singers, it had Rich, Richard Pryor, Carla Thomas, Rufus Thomas, like we're talking about. Luther Ingram, Kim Weston, Johnny Taylor, the Bar Hayes, which we talked about earlier as well, Isaac Hayes, Albert King, and it just is an amazing and never been done again event in Black music history. Um, you know, we have festivals like the Roots Picnic, or you have um, something in the water that's Pharrell's festival, but something that's done as a benefit concert and a festival with that many legends happening, like a party with a purpose that hasn't been happening, that hasn't happened again. So I just, it's so, it's crazy. And it's amazing history to be able to talk to you about, you know, since you were there and participated. 103,000 people were there. I believe it's in the Guinness Bill of Records at one time. And yeah. no problems, no fights, no hassle, you know. When those guys, when Rufus Thomas was on stage, and those guys broke the barrier and 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 charged the stage. That was a moment. Trust me, we didn't know if they were going to stop. <laughs> yeah. When you called your family about that situation, or not that situation, but that opportunity, how did they react? Because oh, you didn't know either, right? You didn't know you were about to perform with Rufus Thomas, so no, we didn't, and um, it was just an amazement. It was just. Um, it was just a great opportunity. Matter of fact, I consider Rufus Thomas being one of our guardian angels. Um, he, uh, besides the Soul Children, now the Soul Children, we had a very similar uh, relationship with them. Um, they came to the West Coast. Now we were, we were scheduled. Our manager told them, "You don't need to bring no band. We got the greatest band right here in California. We love. We'll play anything. They'll learn your show." And so they came. With only a drummer, a fantastic drummer. He was a show drummer. Memphis is famous for drummers and great musicians. And so, and back in those days, now this was um in the seventies. They did they couldn't email us our songs, so we didn't have no playlists or anything. They had maybe three or four albums, but they literally sang our parts to us, you know. <laughs> Dun, 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 you know, and you had to be able to match pitch and play by and, ear. And we picked up the songs like that, very short period of time, like a day, and uh, maybe two days. And we was nervous at that point. That was one of our biggest gigs that we had did, and we were confident about the music. But we we kind of crammed all these songs in. I said a very short period of time, but so we're doing an intro song. And we playing, so the drummer got up, and he did a big, a bunch of rim shots, plop, 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 and got off the drums. And we still playing, you know. And so he walked up to each one of us, "Hey man, just a gig, man. Don't worry, gonna be okay." <laughs> you know. He walked up to the basement, "Hey man, just a gig. Don't worry, man. It's gonna be all right." He walked up to each one of us, and then got back on the drum, plop, boom, got right back in the groove, right. 
So we were so, I mean, he shocked us so much that we forgot how nervous we were. <laughs> we was able, so we were able to get to the show, had no problems. So the Soul Children enjoyed, they liked our band. So we had that Memphis sound. We kind of, we had the horns. We was rolling with three horns back at that time. And we had the beats. We had an organ. And, you know, uh, and the, you know, the, the fat bass and everything, guitar. So we had the the, the feel that they like. Mm-hmm. And so a year later, they came back to town. And we just went to the club to see them. Because that's how we did. They were a great group for one. And we went up and got right up front. And we're going to, you know, follow the soul trip, you know. And so after the show, they saw us. They said, come backstage. Uh, we want to talk to you. So after the show, we did. We're backstage. And they made us an offer we couldn't refuse. They, well, they said they wanted us to come back this Sunday and talk to their manager. Because they told them they were firing their band. You know, actually, I really think the band quit. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so quiet as it's kept. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, it was too awesome the way things happened, right? Yeah. But um, um, they asked us to come to Memphis, Tennessee, and open up. They're going to be their show band. We'll perform for them um, at eighteen Theater Coliseum with with Bobby Womack, The Emotions. Um, uh, the staple singers, and there was a group out of Chicago called Sons of Slum. They was like funkadelic clones. Mm-hmm. And we did it. We were there. We learned this show. And um and it was history. So so when Rufus Thomas got home to us, he also introduced us to his daughter, Carla Thomas, and we did her first USO tour in Japan. And and that was a big hit. You know, she was very nice to us. She, you know, treated very nice. And um, with our connections, we toured Japan for the next 10 years. Um, performing there at least once, sometimes twice a year, you know, for um, six-week period of time, two months. And so we established ourselves in Japan. I heard Japan, Japan goes up for Black music. Like, oh. <laughs> they yeah. love it. We were honorary members of this jazz club called the Afro Rake. Oh. And uh, everybody in the club was all Japanese, but they all wore Afros. <laughs> what? <laughs> How they get their head to do it? Like I don't know, but they had some bomb Afros too. <laughs> booming, you know. That is know? so funny. Yeah. So they love, they love black music. How was that? Was it a culture shock? Was it like I know that you're from California, then moved to Memphis, and and then you went to Japan. So what was that like? Oh, total awesome because they uh they loved it. They really I mean, when we perform their dance, we did a 45 minute set. They dance from the beginning to end, never stop. They stay on the dance floor. Wow! Because uh, the music didn't stop, we didn't stop. Yeah, so didn't stop. what a dream! Yeah. And they loved it. They treated us excellent. Um, I remember uh, the last time, after 10 years going back there and back, uh, when we were coming back the last time, we were sad. We didn't want to come back to the earth. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) Right, y'all was in heaven (laughs) over there in Japan. I mean, you know it. That's like, wow. Um, Always um, assuming that we would get to go back you know, some period of time. Matter of fact, I'm still working on going back. Our, our first trip to Japan, we thought, you know, because we were up to uh, always improving our show. We like to um, always uh, have the latest, newest song that's coming out. Okay, so we said, oh, man, we can get behind our music, man. We're going to be, you know, lost when we we'll get back to California, right? But their their music was so current that we was matter of fact they may have been a little bit ahead of us America because uh, uh, Grand Central Station was out there we was learning songs in Japan we learned Grand Central Station and a few other songs we back got back to California the west 
um, the song wasn't even planned yet. Nobody even had heard of the song. So we were actually ahead of the musical scene here. That's why I also think it's just so important to travel too, because if you don't see the world, then you think that the whole world is the, the U.S. and it's not. We met we met the Pointer Sisters there. We were performing at the club Mugen. Wow. We performed there. Also, Taste the Honey was performing yeah. at them. Oogie Boogie. <laughs> yeah. So they were very, you know, on the music. I, I wanted to talk about um, Too Tight specifically because one thing that I love to do, especially with Soul Sugar, and I know that you're familiar with um, how I talked about Love's Train and how Silk Sonic redid it and then went into the story and everything on my TikTok account. But um, I would love to bring up some of the influences that, well, the newer artists who I feel like are inspired by this song in particular. I don't know if you're familiar with Tyler, the creator. Are you familiar with him? No, but I don't, I don't get out that much. Okay, not a problem. See, that's why I'm here to put you on while you also educate me. So yeah. there's a part on uh, I think that's one of the most loved bridges in in like Tyler's whole discography and one of my favorite bridges of all time. Like, mm-hmm. so hearing too tight and then hearing that song, I was like, that is either the same voice on the keyboard or could you speak to how you got that sound out of your keyboard? And I don't know if it's similar for him. But we used a, a mini move for that sound. Okay, and um. And now I use, right now I'm using Yamaha now to create the same sound because, you know, you can duplicate sounds on multiple different keyboards. The the strings in it and how light it feels, it, it reminds me of the emotions also. So were you uh, working with the emotions or performing around them during the time that you recorded Too Tight? Was there any influence there or inspiration? But no, for our producer at the time um, would send our, our music to Los Angeles and had a string composers do our strings on our songs, on, on two titles especially. There was a couple of those songs that just got flipped once they did the orchestration to them. So um, David, Crawford, David Crawford did the string arrangements to our stuff. And uh, I believe he probably worked with the emotions as well. Okay. Skip Scarborough was our was our producer, and uh, he worked with Earth, Wind, and Fire, um, uh, LTD, the emotions, and many other acts. Um, so they our music was was uh, worked with very high quality people. And um, Skip Scarborough, I know, gets a, um, credit for helping you to make the the West Coast sound, but like that in the um, merge of the Memphis sound and the West Coast sound, but making that um, making it uh, defined and refined. So um, for those who are listening who don't know who Skip Scarborough is, he produced or wrote Can't Hide Love by Earth, Wind & Fire. Also, Giving You the Best I Got by Anita Baker, Love Ballad by LTD. And you also have a tie to LTD with Jeffrey Osborne. He was a vocalist with Confunction or uh, performed. And how, how did that work? Were you guys was on tour? Who were together? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Could you speak to um, your collaborations with Skip Scarborough and Jeffrey Osborne? And I know they're completely different, but I would just love to hear some stories. Oh, well. Skip Scarborough, he was just a dream. He was a very nice guy. He was like my uncle. You know, I tried to spend as much time with him as I could. Um, matter of fact, I have a little Skip Scarborough in my his spirit is embedded in me still today. <laughs> um a gracious, humble man and just a phenomenal musician. His um his gift, uh, he knew just what to add. And just what not to do. If it was fine, he would leave it alone. And he would just, I mean, he really helped us get our foundation. And he helped me to find my foundation in, in music as well. Jeffrey Osborne? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was just a total professional all the time. I mean, he's down to earth, you know, fun loving guy. But when you've seen him, um, um, most of the time, I've seen him on stage, <laughs> uh, 
on the way to stage, coming off, he was focused and just really nice guy. I love to hear stories about how someone is on and off stage because it, it definitely speaks to their character. And I would love to know more about um, your favorite Confunction songs. Do you have like a top three or and what are the reasons for? Is there like a specific section that you love of one or a bridge on here? Good question. There's, there's a few, as a matter of fact. Any Summer Love is one of them. Um, I, you know, me being a, um, kind of a um, business-minded, like in my show that I have, I love the hits. I love what everybody else loves, <laughs> basically. And I give them what they want, okay? But um, there's uh, there's one song that everyone loved um, so easily. It was on, I think, one of our first albums. Um, and I kind of, um, it's a funky tune. It's lots of change. And I'm featured on organ in that one. And um, one of the few times that the organ gets, you know, played in funk music as well. But, um, but I love all of the songs. All of um fun was uh, the song that broke the ice. Let Me Put Love. It's a great one. I love the guitar and the vocals on Let Me Put Love. Um, and two titles, of course. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Plus Love Train, you know, we're still doing that today. But any and some of love, check any and some of love out when you get a chance. Okay, absolutely. I would love to ask you about um Soul Train and being on Soul Train. I don't know when I'll be able to talk to someone who's actually been there and during the peak of it. Um, so I'm taking this opportunity, but um, I know that Soul Train was considered and still is like the dawn of a new era in Black history and Black music. And how did it feel to be there on the set? Was it, did it exceed your expectations or what was a really cool aspect of being on the show? Yes, each and every time it was a total blast. I mean, because everybody is so, you know, LA is free anyway. You know, everybody just, I don't need a partner to dance. Everybody is just upbeat. Um, um, and, and so when we do the show, you know, um, everybody loving the music. As well, you know, we also did a Megan Bandstand and, Solid Gold as well. Solid Gold was probably was, was probably the most exciting one with the Solid Gold dancers, but that's another story. Another <laughs> oh, something else. <laughs> American Banston, the guy used so much. He never got old at the time. I mean, he kept his you know his look, but Don Cornelius was so he was he was so cool and and such a gentleman all the time. Um, he really made that show um, to be as awesome as it was. And plus, it was his vision with the music and and starting it starting it off. Um, I give him a lot of recognition, a lot of recognition for what he did, what he was able to accomplish. Compunction was a part of so many amazing black moments, like in terms of the um, Wattstocks. Uh, benefit that you were all a part of and then being able to be on Soul Train. Did you know that these were times that wouldn't be duplicated when you were in the center of it, experiencing it? You know, when you're young and crazy, you think it's never going to end. <laughs> you're invisible. You know, you, you're waiting for the next next thing to happen. You know, we just, we're just living life and, and, stepping to, and stepping into every moment and cherishing it. And giving it our best that we could. I think our fascination, I'm I'm part of Gen Z. So even being um not even a thought <laughs> during all this happening, because it's just like so before my time, the fascination behind still loving it and finding it so incredible is the representation that it brought in in even in this music, the representation of just incredible musicians and it was just a different time that you saw on television of people really embracing who they are. Um, so I just think that's amazing. But your book is called My Life in Fun Times with Confunction. 
I, I really enjoyed reading it. It's a beautiful life story that you chronicled out being a member of, and I learned this about you, of being like a member of almost 10 bands after Confunction. You were a part <laughs> of so many bands. It goes on and on. Yeah. <laughs> and um, even the story of um, your wife, Wanda, and how you met and that, I felt like I was reading a romance. It's such a beautiful story. Um, and how faith and relationships are really important to you. So what would you um, hope that when someone purchases the book, what do you hope that they take away from it? Well, I try to give, you know, because people come to me all the time wanting to know um, about how to start a band, how to release a song, how to write a song, how to do all these things in music. A lot of people have bands and don't know what to do how to go about getting a record deal and stuff like that. So I try to instill little tidbits of positivity and knowledge through the book as well for those that was interested. Um, giving them a little one-on-one -on -one, um, lesson, um, A, 1A, things to do, um, things that you must do to be successful in the business as well. And and give them all our fans that have supported the group all these years. Um, maybe a peek backstage, you know, peek into the life the world of a musician, the things that we've been, the things that we went through, um, the life of a musician and stuff like that. And just share my personal story, you know, because I don't take credit for any of the success or anything that I have accomplished. I, I, you know, I, I honor my parents. I get a lot of my my style, my grandfather, you know, who's I'm named. I'm named after both my father and my grandfather. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, my grandfather was the character in the family. Okay, <laughs> and I, and um, he was just amazing, and everybody loved him. My mother was the rock. Uh, she's the reason that you know I'm a musician today. This book was written during the pandemic. This where I couldn't leave the house. <laughs> you know, everything is shut down. My uh, my church is shut down. I wasn't playing in church for the first time in years. And so I had started writing years prior. And I would get some notes down. And I had notes and they would get lost and things would happen. So this was the first, this was the perfect time. For me to sit and ask, well, now if, if I don't do it now, I probably never do it. Okay, so I slammed this book book out in a year during the pandemic, and I tried to just pour, um, you know, as far as the group, the ups and downs. You know, if that you know, life isn't all good. You have some situations, but it was good for me. You know, I have no regrets with the group. Um, um, I'm 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 happy for the guys that are still performing. Um, I'm blessed to still be performing myself, and so I just want to give back to our, my public, our, our fans that have followed the group and still follow the group. And you definitely gave us that gift and everything that you're talking about, leaving that legacy and having that life story for you know ever. It's immortalized in that book. There was definitely a deep sense of gratitude through the the book it was just like themes of gratitude like oh this was great or this was so good you know so I, I love to hear that especially um being a successful ha having a really long career and a strong successful career as a black musician in the industry that's encouraging for I know so many people who will be watching this um <clears throat> what do you think are some characteristics of a successful musician and these will be my closing um questions but I know that you love to to teach and to give wisdom so what would you say are like some traits or some characteristics for a successful musician well number one is dedication you should and being ready being prepared um, learning your gift uh, enhancing your gift to your maximum and just always being ready, being prepared, because you never know when that knock on the door, when that opportunity is going to um, address itself. 
Um, it kind of is it's very simple to me because uh, we all have a gift. Um, recognition is very important. You have to recognize your gift and what you have, what you have to offer. And this goes to any business, really, you know, just not music. But especially because, see, musicians are kind of weird. <laughs> music, music people, because, you know, they're in that other vein all the time. They're always <laughs> in their head, you know. Yeah, but um, I, I, I pride myself. I used to tell people, um, like when I was doing business, I used to tell people, because musicians have a, um, you know, have known for being crazy and out there, right? And I would tell them, I'm a, I am a down-to-earth musician, you know, I don't do all the crazy stuff, <laughs> you know, but they, only if they, only if they knew, you know, but, um, um, but life is too short. I recommend everybody pursue their goals, whatever they want to do, and with, like, it's like your life depended on it. Okay, and and if you do that, I guarantee you that you will reap your just deserve. And that's applicable for everything. I feel like that's just good, good wisdom right there. And um, a last question. What would you say to R&B and soul music lovers, listeners, people who are just fans who aren't musicians but love it? What would you say to them? Keep loving, keep supporting. I noticed um, now that the pandemic, everybody is coming back. You know, uh, um, um, the groups are out, ready to perform. They they are anxious to perform, and the people are anxious to hear them. So, um, listen, joy. Let's keep the positive vibe going on. You know, but let's squash all this hate and 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 fighting and all this madness that's going in the world. Okay. We um I'm I'm in the positive tip. You know, let's make love. Keep keep the keep the love alive and everything will be just fine. Absolutely. Well that was beautiful. And adding to that, keep them ticket prices low. Y'all are getting crazy out here with these ticket prices we trying to support. <laughs> You're right about that. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much for your time um you prefer me calling you danny or mr thomas or i was just anything don't call me late for dinner <laughs> never D that right <laughs> that's so funny well, it was so nice. i have to tell you you cute as a but i'm just enjoying your oh. presence your smile everything about even your love when you get your little, your little funk face <laughs> oh, I, I try to take a picture of it. No, no, no. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it's it's that, so that was funky right there. <laughs> yeah, like ground up, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's all about feeling like I I mean, I really don't want to spend much time on me, but I was raised on um funk music and soul and R&B. So just speaking with you and hearing the stories from my parents and their parents of like, oh, you know, Confunction and this song and that song, it's, you know, you, you never think that it's going to come full circle like this. So this is was just a such a pleasure of mine. Um, yeah. I just hope that you enjoyed your time here on the Soul Sugar Joint. Oh, it's so cool. And anytime, if you have any questions, any subject matters you want to discuss with me, let me know. I'll be honored to come back. Wow, I really appreciate that. I definitely will. And uh, please plug whatever you are working on or have released. I have do have new music coming. Okay. Uh, one of my ongoing projects is Free the Dream, which is a tribute to uh, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, and President Obama. I've been doing mixes of this song for 10 years. I have a new remix coming out. It's out now. I'll probably be doing another next year. I, I, um, it's on iTunes and all the so different social media events. And you'll be hearing from me um, very shortly on a new funk piece that I got coming up. This book, My Life in Fun Times with Confunction, it's on Amazon. And where else could they find it? 
Good question. You can go to my website, dannyathomas.com, and you can order straight from there, and I'll send you an autographed signed copy to your home with tracking information. You had any trouble receiving yours? No, 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 no. It was see? in my mailbox, and it's signed. Hold up, let me show you. You see it right here. But there yeah, you go. There it is. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Such a nice touch. Right on. Thank you again. To the listeners and the people watching this, uh, please dive deep into the greats and the people that you listen to now. They were influenced by the foundation that was laid by artists like, I mean, artists like Danny Thomas and groups like Confunction. So get into it and make playlists and share that uh, knowledge with other people. And that's what we try to do here on the Soul Sugar Joint.